the uh, theme of our luncheon today as being armed and dangerous. Of course, my thoughts went immediately to our military, and a lot of them serving in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And I know when they joined the military, they weren't put, you know, the very next day right in the center of uh, the heat of the battle, but they had to go through training and training and more training. And they had to learn, you know, just basic things like how to apply their uh, uh, armor and uh, protective gear and not only to, to protect themselves, but they also had to uh, learn weapons, you know, which weapon you use under which circumstance. And, and they, uh, they, but they also had to know their enemy. They were taught, you know, how he thinks, uh, where they hide how they uh, proceed, and when to hold back, and when to attack, and a uh, tremendous amount of, of uh, training that has to go into it. Now, I know that when we think of um, armed and dangerous for us ladies here in this room, of course, we're talking about a different battle. We may not be in Afghanistan or Iraq, but we are in a war every single day of our lives. And uh, we need to know our enemy. Um, he's here, he's present, he never ends, he never stops. And, uh, of course, that's Satan, his adversaries. And as Scripture says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. But he's a horrific foe, and uh, we find ourselves daily uh, fighting on behalf of our children and our families and our marriages and, and our health. <clears throat> and so uh, we, too, you know, the Lord has given us um, armor, and, uh, of course, we know from Scripture what those pieces are and how we apply them or should apply them. And he's also giving us weapons of our warfare. And he's given us a lot. But I believe that this is our greatest weapon, ladies, our greatest weapon. Now, when the milit- you know, some of the men on the, on the field, they may know everything about that, um, that rifle. You know, they have to take it apart, put it together, take it apart, put it together. And they know every aspect of it. But if they put it over their shoulder and they never put ammunition in it, or they never have the courage to pick it up and aim it and fire it, it's useless. It's worthless. And it's just like the, the Word of God. If we keep it under our arm like this, it's just a piece of uh, material. You know, it's paper, it's print, and it, it never becomes effective. Uh, but also we need not only to armor ourselves, we need to know our weapons of our warfare, but we need to know our enemy. We really need to know our enemy. When I was a very little girl, my mom would start teaching and training me. And she said, when any situation came up, whether it was for me or a sibling or a neighbor or someone in the church, she says, okay, honey, what was the enemy's plan? What was he doing? How did he get in? What was the door he entered? How could he have been held off? How could uh, he, his, his plans been thwarted? Tell me the verse. Tell me the verse. And shoot down that, that lie. And she drilled me and drilled me and drilled me so that I knew how, who my enemy was, how he worked. That keeps you one step ahead of him all the time. And um, if my mom had not done that, if she had not trained me to do that, I could not have persevered in the battle that the Lord was going to put me in, in ministry, that he chose for me. And um, there's no way I could have survived, uh, let alone excelled in that. And uh, that testimony of that call on my life is what Pastor Brenda wanted me to share. And that battle that the Lord was going to put me in was in the battle uh, against abortion. And I just want to uh, preface this by saying 
with a group this large, there's usually someone that has a, uh, been involved in abortion in one way or another, and I'm not here to uh, condemn you or pass judgment on you. That's not what this is about. And certainly New Hope is a safe place, ladies. You will find uh, nothing but grace and, and, and uh, mercy here. And so if you have experienced abortion uh, firsthand or any involvement, just put it out of your mind. That's not what this is about. My testimony is about God's faithfulness, incredible faithfulness to me in uh, the area of obedience in my life. I had gotten involved with my parents in the uh, early 60s in an effort to try to prevent Roe v. Wade, an abortion on demand. And from there, I worked in uh, crisis pregnancy centers, and I helped start a maternity home, and I did 10 years of post-abortion counseling. And during that time, I went through a very um, painful divorce. My husband abandoned me and uh, our two children. And out of necessity, had to move home with my mom and dad. I always say, look out, they always do come home. <laughs> and I was one of them. And uh, I, I, of course, got a job right away, and my children changed schools. And, but I would come home from work every day and do what I had to do with my children and help around the house or whatever. And I would go into my room and lock myself in there with the Word of God. And I had come to the Lord when I was nine years old. And I loved the Lord, and I served him. But that's kind of like, that's what you're supposed to do, right? And, uh, but, but the Lord had done some, was doing something. And as I just lived in the word, he restored me from the pain of that divorce in such a way that I went from loving the Lord to absolutely falling in love with the Lord. Just, you know, when we study, study crazy love? Oh, I so identified with that book. I, I, I stepped into a different area, and I, I just love the Lord so much. I was so grateful for his restoration during that time of my life that I learned about a brand-new Jesus. And I just so fell in love with him, and I wanted to give him my whole life. You know, take my whole life, Lord. And I started praying that every day. Lord, take my whole life. You know, something I can get up every single day and say, Lord, this I do for you. And I continued to pray that. I continued to work, and I continued to pray it. And it kept saying, you know, whatever it is, Lord, just take my whole life. And um, I warn you, be careful how you pray, because uh, he's listening. Uh, during that time, um, living with my parents, my mom had multiple sclerosis. And uh, by this point, she had progressed so far in the disease that she was completely bedridden at this point. Uh, she was paralyzed from her neck down. She could only move her head a little tiny bit. That's all she could do. And she was that way for 18 years, the last 18 years of her life. But my mama always glowed with the love of the Lord. And people used to come to the house, and they would sit in the living room and stand up down the hall and everything so they could go in so Mama could encourage them and counsel them. And uh, she had a, a tremendous heart and an incredible uh, walk with the Lord. But she had a, a tremendous burden for the mamas and the babies uh, regarding the abortion issue. She had been very, very active, and then because of her paralysis, she couldn't do any more, and she was really grieving about that. And I woke up one morning, and I heard her crying uncontrollably. And Mama never did that, never did that. And I got up, and I ran down to her room, and she was just sobbing and sobbing. And I said, Mama, what's wrong? And she was, Daddy was off running an errand or something, and he had left the radio on to the uh, uh, 12 o'clock news broadcast. 
And uh, there was a live report about Operation Rescue. And Operation Rescue is a group of um, pro-lifers, uh, Christians, pastors, different men, women, children, that go to abortion clinics, sit down in front of the door, they hold hands, they pray, and they, they block the door until a silo counselor can uh, talk to the women going in, let them know they care about them, they would like to help them. Only in doing so, they're trespassing and they're arrested. And I, and I didn't think much about those little crazy people, you know, and have anything to do with me. Well, Mom was listening to this. And there in Los Angeles, they were seriously beating them up. The police were beating them up. So she hears them screaming and screaming, and she said, I need to be there. I need to be there. I need to do my part. I need to be there. And, and she was just angry. I can't even lift my head off the pillow, and, and I need to be there. And she just kept sobbing. And, and I said, Mama, you know, the Lord knows your heart. But for whatever reason, he's not healed you. you. He knows you can't go down there. No, I need to be there. And she was just sobbing, and her chest was paralyzed. And so, you know, the doctor said, you know, to keep her from, you know, ever crying, or you know, which was never a problem before, because she could suffocate. So no matter what I said, I couldn't calm her down. And so finally I says, okay, Mama, okay, you know, uh, stop crying. I'll go for you. I'll be your arms and legs, and I'll stand in the gap for you and the babies. And she goes, you will? And she got this big smile on her face. I go, oh, no. <laughs> what did I say? And she says, oh, honey, you're my flesh and blood, and that would be as close as me being there as possible. And she said, will you go to the rescue tomorrow? And I says, uh, uh, okay. And then I says, well, you know, I'd never have a traffic ticket, you know. And I says, Mama, don't those people, like, get arrested? And she says, uh-huh. And I said, uh, and, like, go to jail? And she says, uh-huh. I says, but, Mama, aren't they getting beaten up? She says, uh-huh. And I said, Mama? And she says, oh, thank you so much, honey, for doing that. So, I, you know, there was no way I could wiggle out of that one. And so I went the next day for the first rescue. There were about 4,500 Christians there, and it was unreal. I mean, I got an education as I walked across the street with them in front of the abortion clinic. It was full of a couple of hundred of um, we call pro-aborts and Satan worshipers, and they had holding big signs saying, Jesus Christ is my gay lover. They had crosses, and they were urinating on them. And chanting horrible, horrible things. And as I walked across the street, I literally could feel myself walk into a wall of evil. And uh, uh, many, many things went on that day, but I got arrested. <sighs> First time in my life. It was Easter Sunday. It was Easter weekend. And um, most of the people who were arrested were pastors and um, were men, um, thousands of them. And there were only 250 of us that were women, but we got put in this one great big area together in this one uh, great big room. And we had the next morning on Sunday was the greatest sunrise service we have ever had in our lives. It was awesome to be in, in fellowship and singing and praising the Lord there. But the Lord started doing something in my heart in, in my spirit that, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's like secret things that he was pouring into my being. It's nothing I would ever be able to read anywhere, just secret things I knew I was going to carry with me for the rest of my life. And because of that, 
I, I wanted to go to every rescue I could. And, and I was finding out, you know, well, I wasn't always going to be with a bunch of people after that. And it was like those dark, cold holding cells is where he would speak to me. And, uh, but we were fellowshipping and we, you know, we got to sing, you know, Paul and Silas went to jail, had no money for their bail. I mean, we, we thought of all kinds of stuff to sing. And the Lord was really blessing. And before I know it, I got arrested 12 times. And uh, I was still working, and I had used up all my sick days and all my vacation days. And so I got called into the supervisor's office because what would happen is there were so many of the Christians being arrested on a Saturday, they didn't have time. That's okay. I do better standing up, but thank you anyway. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, they didn't have time to book us all. There were so many, you know, do the fingerprints and the mug shots and all that. And sometimes they weren't done in time to let us out on a Monday morning. And whoops, you know, not at, not at work. So I got called to the supervisor's office. And, you know, I really am a very shy, quiet introvert. And she knew that. So she was trying not to laugh when she scolded me and said, you know, Karen, you've used up all your sick days and all your vacation days. And if you miss one more day's work because you're not released from jail yet, she said, that's the end of your job. And I was polite to her and I was nice. But as I walked out, I thought to myself, well, only if God says so. And I distinctly remember that was the first time of many, many, many times after that that I was going to say to myself or to the enemy or to someone, only if God says so. And so uh, I went home, and uh, there uh, on the table was mail for me from Operation Rescue with an invitation to four days of uh, rallies and rescues in Washington, D.C. And I read the brochure, and I just knew I was supposed to go. So the next morning, I'm driving to work, and I said, well, Lord, if you want me to go to that, you know, to those rallies in D.C., that's four days, and you heard her. I don't have any time left. If you want me to go, you're going to have to do something. So as soon as I get to work, I get called in the supervisor's office again. I thought, I didn't have time to do anything. You know, that was just yesterday. And uh, all the secretaries got called in there, and uh, they had been under financial crunch, and they were, like, counting pencils at this point and and so they said something has come up and the staff has to be out of town uh on such and such a date and would uh we don't need all the supporting staff here would someone mind taking four days off and guess what four days those were surprise surprise so I got to go, bought my ticket, went to Washington, and it was awesome. Again, about 4,500 Christians were there and had rescues and rallies. And the last night I was sitting in the back, and I was folding flyers for someone. And I noticed uh, one of the pastors going to the podium. He was very quiet and very serious. And I, got, I was checking my spirit, and, and I knew I needed to pay particular attention to him. And I actually sat up in my seat. And he said that he was one of 25 pastors that had committed uh, across the United States had committed to fasting and praying for a full-time outreach for rescue. And he said, this is very serious. Uh, this is not for everyone. He says, no matter how we redirected our prayers, it always went back to Atlanta. And uh, he said, uh, you need to pray about this uh, very carefully. Uh, if you were to be a part of it, because it means quitting your jobs, selling your homes, leaving your families, and buying a one-way ticket, because you're not coming back. And my heart went, kathum, 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 kathum. And, and the Lord said, this is what you've been praying, praying for. I said, 
Uh-uh, Lord. Uh-uh. No, 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 no way. You know, I took my spiritual fingers and I stuck them in my spiritual ears. And I said, I don't know what I've been praying for, but I know it's not that. Uh-uh. And, and he says, oh, but I thought you said you'd take my whole life. I said, yeah, but leave my children. I mean, come on, Lord. I mean, that's irresponsible. And, and so I started arguing with the Lord, which I'm really pretty good at. And um, I said, look, you know, uh, you know, you're not an irresponsible God. I mean, I've got uh, Jeremy and, and Kim. Jeremy was 19 and out on his own by then and, and didn't even know who mom was anymore. And But Kim was only 16. Now, she was 16. <laughs> I mean, she was born grown up. So at 16, she was pretty mature. And uh, But we were really, really, really close. And, and I says, and, and Lord, besides, I've, I've got an invalid mother and an aging father, and I have responsibilities. And this is just irresponsible, you know, so this can't be coming from you. And I started arguing with the Lord about the four people in my life that I felt I needed to, that needed me. My mother and my father and my daughter and my son. And all weekend long, whether it was from the pulpit or somebody to turn on Christian TV or the radio or I would open the Bible, it would always come to the verses in Matthew. That said, you're not worthy to serve me unless you're willing to leave mother and father and daughter and son and take up your cross and follow me. Oh, the Lord knows scripture pretty good. <laughs> anyway, um, so I said, okay, okay, Lord, you know, you're starting to break me down. And, and um, I said, but please don't ask me to go without my children's blessing. And so I went home. Uh, by then, this was Thanksgiving weekend, and we used to always gather around in, by Mama's bed in her room. And so uh, I figured I better tell my family what I thought the Lord was uh, calling me for. And I told them, and Mama breaks out in this big smile. She says, oh, that's awesome, honey. And I look at Lord Daddy, and Daddy says, well, honey, don't worry about us. You know, uh, the Lord always takes care of your mom and I. We'll be fine. Don't worry about the children. They're not babies anymore. And I looked over at Jeremy sitting by the desk, and he just goes, oh, Mom, what are you into now? And then he says, oh, well, at least I won't have to drive up to L.A. and pick my mother up from jail anymore. <laughs> and I look over at Kimberly standing by the closet, and she had big old fat tears running down her eyes. And she says, Mama, I love you, and I'll miss you something terrible. But I would rather have you 2,500 miles away from me in God's will than here with me um, and out of God's will. She should just make sure you know what you're supposed to do. Well, I started receiving all kinds of telephone calls from people that I knew there, godly people, mature people. Some were saying, Karen, you know, God didn't give his, your children to your parents to raise, and your mother's an invalid, and your father is getting older, and that's irresponsible. Then I would get calls from other equally mature uh, godly people that would say, Karen, we know you. You can hear from God. You better not disobey him. The best thing for your children is for their mother to be in the center of God's will. And I know scripture says that there's safety in a multitude of counselors, but not when they're saying the completely opposite things. And so I said, okay, Lord, I'm not going to listen to voices anymore, and I can't listen to my own emotions on this. And I said, I want to hear only from your word. They were calling it two things, the call on Atlanta and the siege on Atlanta. And I began praying all day and all that night, Lord, please give me a crystal clear verse if I'm to go to the siege. The next day I was in talking to Mama, and she says, Honey, I'm kind of tired. I need to take a nap. And I says, Okay, Mama, I'll go down to my room and read. 
And she says, read. She says, I forgot. When you were in Washington, your dad and I saw this uh, Bible advertised on TV, and we felt you were supposed to have it. Daddy went out and bought it. It's over there on the bookcase. And my first thought was, what do we need with another Bible around there, you know? And, but but uh, God was setting me up because I only owned, I was raised Baptist. I only owned a King James Bible. And it took me years and years and years before I could stretch myself to the new King James Bible. And that's all I still have. <laughs> and uh, so the Lord knew that. And so I said, okay, well, you know, I went and picked it up. And I thought, well, this is kind of unusual. It was the Living Bible in Quick Scan. Every few verses, every few sentences are in bold print. So if you just read the bold print, you can go through the chapter really fast. And so I went down the, started down the hall from my room, and um, I suddenly became overwhelmed with a need to know what I was supposed to do. They were supposed to have a group of 15 people, uh, a group of people going the 15th of every month to uh, Atlanta. And I needed to know, am I supposed to go for sure? Am I supposed to go with the first group because, uh, uh, you know, I, I got to quit my job. I got to put my affairs in order. And, and uh, you know, do I need to pack, Lord? And as I was approaching my bedroom, I remembered that when I was in D.C., one of the pastors said that if you're involved in rescue, you need to be reading in Jeremiah. So I shut the door to my room, and I opened up that Bible to Jeremiah And I put it on the side of my bed, and I got on my knees, and I started to read the bold print. And some of the verses I read, I could have twisted to say whatever I wanted to to say. And I remember going like this with my hands. No, Lord, I need a crystal clear verse if I'm to go to the siege. The next verse that I read in bold print says, pack your bags. Get ready now to leave. The siege will soon begin. I still get goosebumps. And I thought, what? And I read it again, and my Bible, my King James Bible, was sitting on my pillow, and I picked it up. And, and that same verse in King James says something about taking your wares out of the city, and I never would have gotten that message. So I picked up the Bible, I ran down the hall, I woke Mama up, and I read it to her, and she started crying. She says, I think you better do what it says, honey. You need to pack your bags. And uh, Daddy and Kim weren't home. I read it to Jeremy. He says, whoa, Mom, you better get out of here now. <laughs> and uh, I went back to my room, and I said, you know, Lord, I, I'm, I'm really seeing, I'm kind of burdened about my mom and dad. I don't know if I'll ever see my mom alive again, and I'm leaving more responsibility on, on Daddy with, with Kim. And um, I said, I'm just, Lord, I need encouragement regarding my mom and dad. And I took that Bible and I said, can you do it again? (laughs) I was always taught not to do this, by the way. But anyway, I put that Bible down and I flipped open to Psalms. And the first verse I read in bold print said, I advise you, my daughter, do not fret about your parents. I thought, wow, okay, I'm going. And I'm taking this Bible with me, (laughs) which I did. And I got to quit. They couldn't fire me. Got to lead uh, several of my co-workers to the Lord. And um, the Lord had made it really clear in those couple of weeks that I was to take a complete step of faith. And this is a person of old little faith. <laughs> and uh, not to secure any financial support. Um, I was able, in two weeks, sold what I could sell and emptied out my savings account and paid off all my bills and made a financial, made some financial arrangements for my daughter's care. And I bought the one-way ticket, and I had $100 left in my pocket. And uh, 
the day that I left for Atlanta was, was really difficult. My children brought me to the airport. And you know how you're sitting in the plane and you can look into the glass of the terminal? And Jeremy's you know, six foot tall and Kimmy's taller than me. And, but they look like little tiny toddlers with their hands pressed against the windows, you know. And, 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 I, and I started crying. I said, Lord, I'm abandoning my babies. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, uh, crying, I reached into my purse for a tissue, and Kimberly had tucked a note in there for me. And knowing me like she does, she wrote, Mama, stop crying. <laughs> and then she said, remember always that you're not leaving us. Rather, we are giving you to the babies of Atlanta so that they have a chance to know the love of their mothers the way we've known the love of ours. And God answered my prayer, my children, to leave me, send me with their blessing. Um, as the plane was going down the runway, you know how when you can feel the plane kind of lift off the ground there? It was kind of like when that happened, I thought, oh, I suddenly realized that I was about to fly into a brand new life. I had no clue what was waiting for me. And I'll tell you, ladies, you need to thank the Lord he hides a lot of things from you. Because <laughs> if I knew what was waiting for me in Atlanta, I would have jumped out at 30,000 feet. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, hours later, as uh, the plane is approaching and the, you know, the um, pilot got on and said we were approaching Atlanta, I said, okay, Lord, here I come. <laughs> and uh, I kind of reminded him I only had $100 in my pocket. And, and you, know, well, you know, I'm obeying you with this, uh, this step of faith stuff. And, uh, and you know what? The consequences of my obedience, that's your problem. So here I come. And, um, and I didn't know where I was going to live what I was going to wear, what I was going to eat. But God had gone ahead of me, and he, he uses everybody and everything to meet our needs. And in my case, he mostly used Fulton County Jail because they housed me, they clothed me, and they fed me. <laughs> the housing accommodations were not real great. And you think it's cold here in church on Sunday. Woo, try there. And uh, the clothing, uh, the food was, um, first time I ever to have grits. Hey, that wasn't too bad. They were cold and they were icky, but, but anyway. And they always put me in men's clothing. It was always blue, so I had to roll up the sleeves and roll up the cuffs. And, and ladies, I don't know what those guys do with that opening in there. That's drafty. I mean, it really was. I was always trying to pull sweatshirt down. You know, it was cold in there. But anyway, when I was not in there, the Lord raised up a host family that took me into their hearts and, and their uh, uh, their homes and replaced my family. But the second that we would be arrested and go into jail, I mean, the Lord just went to work like that. Uh, and I usually share a couple examples to help you uh, know. I went from rescuing in Los Angeles with about 4,000 people to 18 in Atlanta. And out of that 18, only five of us were women. And so the uh, first time that we were arrested, we were in this little tiny holding cell on in a pre-child detention center there on Prior Street, and it was about five feet by seven feet, and there were 25 of us in there, in, inmates, and the five of us, and we were shoulder to shoulder, back to back, no window, no light. Back then, they were allowed to smoke in there, and uh, we had just gotten in there. They hadn't had a chance to do mug shots or anything. And a guard came to the door. My name at that time was Karen Black. That was before I met my Stevie Wonder. Anyway, uh, he came to the door and said, Black, out. So he took me out, out, of, out of that cell, around the drinking fountain, into the cell next door. And as he opened the door, light came in from uh, the hallway, and it looked like it was empty. So I said, good, you know, and I got to sit on the bench for once. 
And he shut the door, and as my, it got dark again, but as my eyes adjusted to the light, I could see that there was a woman sitting in the corner. And she was sitting on the sink with her feet on uh, the toilet. And she had a business suit on and earrings and heels and all that. And I looked at her and said, you don't look like you belong in here. And she says, you don't look like you belong in here. And then she was pointing to my T-shirt. She says, what does that mean? I had an Operation Rescue T-shirt on that said, be a hero, save a whale, save a baby, go to jail. And so I got to tell her who we were and what we were doing there. But I really felt like the Lord was impressing upon me to explain fetal development to her, which I did. And then she goes, put your hands up. She says, you've said enough, you've said enough. Now I know why I'm here today. She said, yesterday, my daughter came to me and told me that she was pregnant, and I was enraged. She said, I got on the phone, and I made an appointment for an abortion for her tomorrow. When I left for work this morning, she said she was going to be on her knees all day, begging God to send somebody to me to talk me out of it. And she said, you're not going to believe how I got here. She said she was on the way to work, uh, on the eight, going south on 85 freeway at 8 in the morning in downtown Atlanta, bumper to bumper. If you've ever been in Atlanta, you know what that's like. And she got pulled over for speeding. <laughs> she says, now, now you know I wasn't speeding. You know I wasn't speeding. And I says, yeah, I know that. So she said, he said he gave me one ticket. And then he asked for my, my license. And she says, I reached for my wallet. I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. She said, why wasn't it in my wallet? Why can't I find it? And she said she dumped her purse out on the seat, and she couldn't find it. That's ticket number two. And then she uh, he asked for proof of insurance. It wasn't in her wallet. She said, I have a copy in my wallet, a copy in the glove compartment. She said, I dumped my glove compartment out, and I couldn't find it. She couldn't find it. That's ticket number three. In Atlanta, three tickets. They tow your car, and you go to jail. And uh, so she gets on the phone, she calls her daughter, and she says, Honey, I want you to know I'm going to help you all the way through your pregnancy. There was not a phone in the other, there usually isn't. There was a phone in that cell. And she gets up, she hangs up the, hang up, hung up the phone. She gave me a hug, she says, Thanks for being here today. And uh, the guard comes and opens the door and says, Black out takes me back around the drinking fountain, puts me in the other cell, doesn't say anything. And it was just going, you know, everything was going like that. Now, I was in there for 12 minutes, but it was 12 minutes appointed by God. Now, I later found out from her that after I was called out, she was called out because the, the woman in the property department, the guard found her license and her, reg, her uh, proof of insurance. God blinded her to those two pieces of paper uh, as an answer to her da- daughter's fervent prayer. And, uh, but if it took 12 and a half minutes to talk somebody out of an abortion or lead them to Christ, I'd get locked in with them for 12 and a half. I mean, they couldn't get away from me. <laughs> if it took four and a half hours, I would be in there for four and a half hours. And, you know, one time we got set upstairs to housing, and there's like seven quads for the men because they're, they're better than we are. And there were only two for the women. And I was in one quad, and this girl came over, and she said, she says, Karen, she said, there's a, this girl in the quad next door, and, and she's seven and a half months pregnant, and the guards are taking her to Midtown Hospital tomorrow for an abortion, and I don't think she really, really wants it. And you've got to help her. You've got to help her. And, and I said, well, I, you know, talk to her. And I says, well, I would really like to do that, but, you know, there's a great big wall and a big old power door and a big old lock between us. And she says, well, I don't know how to do it, but a lot of the girls know how to pick the lock. She says, maybe they could show you. And I thought, 
pick the lock. I could, like, still get in trouble. And I thought, well, what are they going to do? I'm already here in jail, you know. So, and, and she said, and I, I thought about solitary confinement. I hear it's nice and quiet up there, so that wouldn't have been so bad. So they taught me how to pit the lock, and they would stand guard, and I went over there over and over and over again. So finally the guards figured it out, and they said, look, Black, you know, if we find out there's a girl over there that's upset and crying or something, we'll just come get you, okay? And uh, at that time there were only five of us rescue women. And whenever there was a riot, I mean, there used to be some serious fighting. You put 250 women in a room together and clawing and scratching and biting and hitting. And uh, Anyway, the guards used to come get us. And they would take us to the door and push us in. Calm them down is what they say. And as soon as we get in there, the girls would see us and say, stop, stop it, stop it. The church ladies are here. Stop it, stop it, stop it. You know, and they would calm themselves down. And we would have them in a few minutes, you know, they'd be holding hands and swinging back and forth. And, oh, how I love Jesus. It was just, it was unreal. I would lose my voice whenever I was in jail from sharing the gospel all day long, all day long, all day long. So the Lord was doing, I mean, I, I knew when I was in jail I was, I was being used by the Lord. But he started doing something different with me than the other fellow rescuers. Um, there in Atlanta, if you're arrested twice on your own recognizance, they, they, will, they will release you on your own recognizance the third time you're held. So what would be happening when a new group would come, I would join them, and we'd be arrested and released, arrested and released, arrested, they'd be held, I'd be released. I never paid a bond, I never paid a fine, and I'd be out by myself. And it's cold out there, you know, and I was from California, and the guy's beards were freezing, and I was kicking off ice off my shoes, and, and I didn't like it out there. And I would join the next group, and we would be arrested and released, arrested, re- released, arrested, they'd be held, I'd be released. And I'd be out by myself. So i go down to the clinics, and i try to do what I saw being done. You know, i tried try to sidewalk counsel, and I don't, I don't know what I was doing. And so, you know, it kept happening over and over and over again. I begged them to let me stay in jail. Can I stay? Why can't I stay here? And actually, I was in dinner uh, one night in, in Atlanta, and the solicitor general came up to my table, and he says, Black, what are you doing out? And I said, I don't, I don't know. They keep opening the door. They won't let me stay. Can you tell them to let me stay? He says, no. And he says, you're not going to get out ever again. And he wrote, uh, he put out a written instructions to do not release Karen Black again. Next time we were arrested, I was the first one released. And so I started thinking, you know, okay, Lord, maybe you don't want me in jail after all. But that, you know, I was in, in, in L.A. I had gotten arrested 12 times, and now I had another 12 arrests in uh, Atlanta. And all of a sudden, I got really, really sick one day, and I collapsed. And uh, they t- took me to the doctor, and he said I had an old case of mononucleosis, and they thought I had rheumatic fever again, and uh, that my heart was acting up, and I needed complete bed rest. And I really couldn't argue with him because I was just, I just, I couldn't even lift my head off the pillow. And uh, he says, and I mean bed rest. I don't want you visiting with anybody. I don't want you talking to anybody. You sleep. You rest. And as the weeks went on, I started to be troubled by the fact that um, everybody else I knew was in prison. They were one rescue, one, and it's not even, um, it's a misdemeanor. They were serving one year for own arrest, all of them. 
And uh, I said, they're all in jail, and nobody's down at the clinics. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but at least somebody was there. And, and I started saying, Lord, why don't you raise up a full-time sidewalk counselor? You know, someone to go down there every day. I know it would be a dastardly job, and she'd be in the wind and the rain and the heat and the, and, uh, the hail, and, and she'd get pushed and shoved and, and spit on and pushed into oncoming traffic and lie about. And, but, you, you know, she'd be there probably by herself at 4.30 in the morning to 4.30 at night, but Lord, you could do it. You know, you can do it. You you touched our hearts to leave everything we have and, and go to jail and all that. So I know you can raise up a full-time sidewalk counselor, Lord. And he said, yeah, I can raise you up. And the old fingers went back in the ears and said, no, 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 no. Throw me in the deepest, darkest dungeon. Throw away the key. Anything but that. And, and this, I did this, ladies. I really did this. You think you can argue with God, don't you? Huh? Well, I pushed the sleeves up on my nightgown. I crossed my arms over my chest. I turned my body to the left to the wall. And I said, Lord, doctor says I'm too sick to talk to anybody. I'm not going to discuss this with you any further. It didn't bother me at all. I went sound asleep. Of course, he was there when I woke up. And he was still tugging at my heart. And uh, he started showing and revealing to me that that's what I brought you here for. I used to call the siege on Atlanta to get you here. And uh, I want you on the sidewalks. I want you to reach out to these women. And, you know, I've been in a place of disobedience enough in my life to know I don't like the consequences of disobedience at all. And so I said, okay, Lord, I'll obey you, but please don't send me out the way I am. You know, teach me, anoint me. And as I was resting there in the weeks that followed, the Lord started reminding me of all those years of post-abortion counseling that I did. And I remembered those women, and I remember their stories, and I remember their heartaches and their regret and their pain. And uh, he broke my heart for the aborted bound woman. And I wanted to do everything I could to keep her from experiencing that. And so he was saying, Karen, because she's thinking this, you need to say this. And because she's feeling this, don't say this, don't do that. That was all things I was saying to do and that were wrong. But he started to teach me, and I knew before I went out there that I could reach in love uh, an abortion-bound woman. And uh, so I got well. I had invited one woman, Joanna Luttrell, to go with me. And uh, we were going to go out the following Monday, and on Sunday night, I got a call from somebody in town. I never found out who. And she said, Karen, I hear you're going out sidewalk counseling tomorrow. And I said, yes. And she says, well, I just want to tell you that years before you ever got here, there were 70 women organized to go out to all the clinics in town. And in two full years, we only had eight babies saved. She says that, you know, you can't sidewalk counsel because in in Atlanta, they go fully to nine months of, of pregnancy. Uh, for abortions and she said it's called the city of blood and and the evil here is just too great and and whatever you do don't go to midtown hospital because you only have two seconds when the car drives in and we've never gotten a piece of literature in and she hung up and the lord said go to midtown hospital and go to surgery and go now so i was already in bed i got up i got dressed i drove down there and it was about midnight when i got there and it was a very, very, very hot summer night, but when I got out of the car, I started shaking, and I felt cold, and, and I just suddenly started to realize the awesome task the Lord had just placed on me. It was a life and death assignment, and I stood out there, and, and I said, Lord, if 70 women can't do this, I can't do this, and he said, you're right, you can't, but I can 
And I looked over the roof of uh, Surgery Center, and behind that was the IBM Tower, and most of the lights were out. But there was some beamwork at the top that formed the uh, shape of a cross. And I remember that saying that the hope of all mankind is represented by the cross of Jesus Christ. And through its power, all things are possible. So I started doing a little personal Jericho march around Surgery Center seven times. Every time I went around, I yelled out into the dark. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I came up around the side, and, and I dropped on my knees there in the stones at the parking lot. And I said, Lord, you know, you've asked a big thing of me. You know, I, I, I don't know what else it is left that I can give you or what it is you want of me. But I'm asking a big thing in return. Now, if you know anything about sidewalk counseling, you can be out there for years and maybe have one baby saved. And I said, Lord, don't let, me, don't let me be out here all the time like that woman said in two years and only see eight babies saved. I want a thousand babies. I want a 1,000 babies. I know it's impossible, but you just said, with you all things are possible. So I want a 1,000 babies. Went home, came out the next day with Joanna, and praise God, 22 months later, we had our Celebrate 1,000 banquet. Amen. Yeah. Actually, it was 1,003 because we had three sets of twins born during that time. But I know better than anybody that has very, very, very little to do with me. I mean, I was a kind of a, a child, you know. I, the ones that hid, hide behind their mom's skirt, I mean, literally would wrap her skirt around me, and she would go around all day long like this. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of people. I was afraid of things that go bump in the night. And for me to be doing what I was doing out there in the dark uh, with, with unbelievable things in a bad neighborhood, all of it is so not me. And when I would hear things come out of my mouth, I think, whoa, that's good. <laughs> that wasn't me. You know, you're a good, God. And uh, so I knew that it had very little to do with me. The Lord is the one that brought success to it. Later on, we stopped counting babies at 5,800 years later. 5,800. And we, uh, but I knew he brought success to it, but he didn't make it easy for me. I always tell everybody, you know, when he gives you assignment or whatever it is in your life, he doesn't want it to be easy for us, ladies. He doesn't. How can we build spiritual muscle if we don't lift spiritual weights? Now, he may have brought the success to it, but the very day that I went out to commit to full-time sidewalk counseling, they had put an injunction on us. We had gotten arrested before I got sick for praying. That's all we were doing. We're not trespassing. We're not blocking. We got arrested for praying. They sent us to Key Row Prison. And uh, the, the, the clinic that we were at when we were praying when arrested, she yelled out, the clinic director yelled out, if they're going to be out here praying every day, we just will give up right now. They know the power of prayer more than we do. So they put out the injunction saying that we couldn't be there within 50 feet of the property line. Not the front door, the property line, which would be way, way, way too far away. Couldn't carry, it said we couldn't carry signs, which I did not do. We couldn't carry a Bible, which I didn't do. We couldn't sing, we couldn't pray, we couldn't breathe within 50 feet. Now, this is not blocking a door, this is not trespassing, this is not blocking a sidewalk. This is walking on a, on a public sidewalk. And, um, of course, they were going to start it the very first day I went out there. And so Joanna and I arrived, and as we pulled her up, on Sergi, uh, uh, up the street uh, by Sergi Center, there were seven squad cars lined up on a one-way street. That was our welcoming committee. 
And uh, what they were there for was to see if, when the first girl arrived, if Karen was going to walk within the 50 feet. Now, it didn't allow, the injunction said, if you violated the injunction, it would be 20 days in jail and a $500 fine multiplied by how many times you got ridden up bef- uh, when the judge decides to bring you in. Well, it didn't take very long at all, and I got written up 63 times. <clears throat> and, uh, but that first morning, they were waiting, you know, to see. The first car arrived, and I wanted to see if I was going to walk within the 50 feet, and I just so wanted to go home. I wanted to crawl back in the covers, you know, and, and it, I felt like Laura was saying, you just obey me, and the enemy will not triumph over you. So I walked within the 50 feet, approached the first car, and all the police officers got out of their their squad cars and started taking pictures of me to prove I was within the 50 feet. And all the clinic personnel came out screaming at me and taking pictures. And it went on and went on. But they finally figured out they didn't need seven squad cars for little old Joanna and I, who was 70-something. And so they had one squad car that came and we back in across the street, the electric company. And they would just sit there and observe. And what they started to see was that, again, I don't scream or yell at the girls or carry signs or anything. And they would see the women voluntarily come up and, and take my literature, stand and talk to me. They were close enough to see their facial expressions. They could see them start to cry, give me a hug, and walk away, go back to their cars, not go in the clinic. And every time they did, the cops were getting charged up, and they'd go whoop, whoop on their sirens every time a girl changed her mind. They go thumbs up both the windows, and uh, there were two in the morning, and then they would come and trade off with the two in the afternoon. And one day when the two in the afternoon came, they said, Karen, how many babies are safe today? I said, oh, I think there were like 12, and the two cops that were there all morning said, no, there were 14. Remember the girl in the yellow sweater and the girl in the red dress? And and then they showed me a, a business envelope where they had been keeping hash marks on there to, see, it says 14. And so the Lord began to sway the hearts of the police officers on my behalf, and they brought me hot tea when it was cold and iced tea when it was hot. Is that right? Yeah, iced tea when it was hot. They brought me clothes to wear. And then they used to bring their wives and their mother-in-laws by to introduce them to me, and I'd go to their house for dinner. And and the wives started collecting baby clothes and cribs. And I had squad cars pulling into abortion clinic in the morning loaded down with cribs, you know, transferring them to my car. And uh, so they refused to write me up anymore. But uh, before, between the time, like I said, between the time that the Lord swayed their hearts, and then I got written up uh, 63 times. So um, you eventually have to go appear in court for that. And uh, to make th- to help you understand what was going on, how difficult the battle was. On the day in, in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was argued before the Supreme Court to allow abortion on demand, most people don't know that same afternoon, Doe v. Bolton was argued that allows abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. Margie Pitts Haynes is the one that argued that before the Supreme Court. She was a prosecuting attorney against me. She's the one that put the injunction out against me. She would come every morning to pick up Beth Petzl, the director of the clinic, and try to run me over with her big car. And this is who I was facing uh, uh, regarding all this injunction. But I was reported, I was told to report for sentencing, and um, that's quite a bit, whatever, 63 times 20 days in jail and 63 times for a $500 fine is. But, you know, when you're indigent, you don't have to worry about anything like that. And uh, so, anyway, three days before I was supposed to appear for um, 
sentencing for that, Jay Sekulow argued before the Supreme Court of Georgia against the injunction. They modified it. They upheld it. But they modified it to say that we could be within the 50 feet as long as there were never more than 20 of us. So all those pictures they all took showed there was either me or Joanna or a couple little old ladies out there. So all their evidence went against them and on our behalf, and they couldn't do anything about it. So praise God. He kept that promise, did he not? Amen. But right on the heels of that, I got called into court again because remember all the times I got arrested and released and released? So that was supposed to be 12 years in jail. A $42,000 fine, and Margie told me when I got into court, she said, we're going to fry you, Black. We're going to fry you. And she says, well, you know, maybe we'll only give you four years, you know. And, and, and she says, but we are demanding that you are going to be banished from the city of Atlanta. I thought, I thought this was United States of America. You know, you can banish somebody from the sidewalk, public sidewalk. She says, oh, yeah, you're going to get it. And I said, only if God says so, Margie. <clears throat> Anyway, I get into the courtroom in every single seat in the jury box, up against the side of the walls are full of police officers. The place is packed. They're out in the hallway peeking through the window. So the judge comes in, and he sits down, and he says, why are all you officers in here? And somebody in the back yells, because we love her. And Margie walks in. Now, when Margie would walk in, you know, judges would sit to attention. So he's got Margie over here, and he's got all these guns over here, you know. So he didn't know what he was going to do. But he, he calls me up front, and he says, he calls me up and stands in front of me. He says, now, Miss Black, what if I told you you can't go out there tomorrow? What are you going to do? And I says, well, Your Honor, I, I don't want to be belligerent or disrespectful, but God told me I have to be out there. So i, I got to obey him. He goes, he says, you could lose your job. I says, oh, well, I already gave up my job, Your Honor, and I live by faith, and I, I don't, I, all my needs are met. You know, God takes good care of me. He said, I could take away your license. He says, oh, well, I don't even have a car. Somebody drops me down there all the time anyway, you know, so, so that's, that's no big deal. And he said, you could go to jail for a very long time. I said, oh, well, I know. I've been there before. It's okay. I can have a jail ministry then. And he goes, <clears throat> He starts rubbing his forehead. He was so frustrated. And then he opens up his, um, my file. And he puts his glasses on. It got really, really quiet. Well, I didn't know that several of my moms, I didn't know for a year and a half, that several of my moms had written letters to him and sent pictures of the babies and said, don't send her to jail. Don't take her off the sidewalk. If she hadn't been there that day, I would have made the biggest mistake of my life. So he closes the file. He takes off his glasses. He says, okay, no jail time and no fine. And then he said this, and it is written in my file, so that your present ministry can continue. I'm not restricting you from any of the clinics. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. So the Lord, the Lord was uh, un unbelievably faithful during all those years. Uh, I don't have time to tell you all the stories. I mean, 5,800 women is 5,800 stories. <laughs> and uh, there were uh, unbelievable things that were happening during that time. And, I, I mean, I, I got arrested 24 times, written up 63 times. Uh, I have been handcuffed and shackled and hogtied. I had a wrist broken with uh, nunchuckers and with mace to turn the dogs out on me. Oh, dogs, that was my biggest fear. God took care of that one, too. 
And um, just unbelievable things. They tried and they tried and they tried and they tried to beat me down and discourage me. But, ladies, when you have someone going in for a nine-month pregnancy and they have a $4,700 check in their hands and you keep turning them away and turning them away and turning them away, they're hurting financially. So, uh, eventually, they thought they, could, they couldn't harass me away from there. So, I, I received in the morning at 4.30 in the morning in the dark uh, an official mafia death threat. And the police that knew me begged me not to go out. They said, Karen, we can't keep you alive. I said, no, you can't. Of course you can't. God can. And I went home, and uh, Scripture opened up to the verse that says, I am the keeper of life and death. And so I had a choice to make. Do I go out there, or do I hide under my bed and die of a heart attack and meet the Lord in fear? Or do I go out there? I went back out the next day, and, and I got shot at twice. But you wouldn't believe what the Lord did to rescue me from those. I mean, I mean, you're walking up the sidewalk. Nobody's been there for half an hour or so. It's dark. I've been there by myself. And all of a sudden, a number two pencil starts rolling down the sidewalk at you out of nowhere. So what do you do? You bend down and pick it up, right? Pew, off goes the rifle, and I didn't get shot. You know, and, and I mean, all kinds of things happen. And, and you know, it's like... How do I, and then I'm, I cannot tell you, I really am a little scaredy cat. I know better than anybody, but it, it just wasn't me. It was the power of God working through me and him showing me over and over and over and over again, I will not fail you. You know, the soldiers out on the battlefield, their, their rifles may be the best in the world, but they can jam. They can fail them. This won't fail us. It can't fail us. And, and they couldn't do anything to me because I learned, I learned and I learned that, the, that no weapon formed against me can prosper. And as long as I stayed obedient and stayed faithful to the call of God in my life, that I was going to be okay. And I just want to encourage all of you ladies, there's, there's much, much, much more that goes on. And actually, I'm still out there. Karen joins me down in Knoxville. And it's nothing like it is in Atlanta. So any one of you want to join me, don't be afraid. And uh, so, you know, God still got me in the battle. And, and uh, the Lord is still incredibly, unbelievably faithful. But, um, ladies, let's learn who our enemy is. It's not each other. It's not the church. It's not your neighbors. We need to join hands. You know, we hear the world, the women in the world say, I am woman, hear me roar. But you and I need to say, I am woman, I will serve my Lord. That's what it's all about. Amen and amen. I just like to close in prayer here, if I can, if every, everyone bow their heads. Father, I just thank and praise you for your incredible faithfulness to us, Lord. Faithfulness to us not only when we're out in a specific battlefield, but, Father, faithful to the young mother as she's picking up Cheerios and, and uh, blowing wet noses, Lord, and, and uh, laboring and losing sleep. And, Father, no matter how tall, how short, how fat, how skinny, how young, how old, Lord, you have a plan for each of our lives. And I pray, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will let the knowledge of this will that you have for each individual life to fall heavy on each woman here today, Lord that she will feel your presence, that she will know how desperately she is loved, how important her life is. I pray, Father, that you will have her walk into that purpose firmly, confidently, that she will know her battle, that she will be armored up, and you will make her dangerous to the enemy. We thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.